0: You are listening to the Cancer From A to Z podcast, episode 11, Surgery for Prostate Cancer with Dr. Seper Nofar. Hi, and welcome to the Cancer From A to Z podcast, where we discuss the issues and topics related to a diagnosis of cancer. I'm your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell. These podcast episodes are intended for informational and educational purposes only and are not a substitute for medical treatment by a healthcare professional. They do not constitute a doctor-patient relationship. Please consult your doctor or other health professional with any questions you have regarding any medical conditions. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Cancer from A to Z. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy day to download this episode. Today, I chat with Dr. Bear Nofar, a board-certified urologist in Southern California. He and I talk all things surgery when it comes to prostate cancer. And if you have listened to some of the previous episodes that I've done, you know that we have touched upon a few things regarding prostate cancer, like PSA and biopsies. But today, we talk All the details regarding surgical treatment for prostate cancer. But before we get to the interview, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Nofar. I think it's been, it's probably going on 10 years since he and I started working together. And he works at West Coast Urology in Southern California. He graduated from Tulane University Medical School in New Orleans And he also received his master's in public health from Tulane University as well. He did his urology residency at the University of California, San Diego in 2011. And now he practices at West Coast Urology. So I hope you find today's episode informative, especially if you or maybe a relative or friend has been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Because there can be a lot of information out there, and it can be a little bit overwhelming, which we kind of talk about in the interview. So, all right. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Nofar. So let's just get started. Sefer, thank you so much for coming on the Cancer from A to Z podcast. How is your Saturday morning going?
1: Great, great. Wonderful. Staying here, living large. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm I'm hanging in there. I haven't had my morning coffee yet, so we'll see how this goes. so so thank you so much and I really appreciate you deciding to come on the show and and talk to us about you and your practice and urology and and actually prostatectomies for prostate cancer so I always love to start off by asking my guests a little bit about them and kind of like you know how they decided to go into medicine and and stuff like that so why don't we just start there so
1: becoming a doctor, for me, was a strange process. It began in kindergarten. Do you remember you had that little circle of three people? It was always a police officer, a teacher, and a doctor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I thought those were my choices. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I, I, I picked the doctor one, Then that's kind of where it started. It's a true story. And, and you know as you go up, I was more interested in science and math. You wanted to help people. And it just kind of developed like that. And wow. I enjoy it. I still enjoyed.
0: it. Oh, okay. So it kind of started at an early age.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, a lot of people in my family are doctors, but it just made m- most sense to me. I just enjoyed it.
0: Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I was about 11 years old, and I my stepsister fell off of her bike one day when we were playing outside, and she she bruised her elbow, and, then, you know, it was bleeding, and I'm like, ooh, this is cool. <laughs> So that's kind of my history. And and I'm like, okay, I think I want to, you know, I want to help people. I want to, because I, you know, really enjoyed, you know, sticking a Band-Aid on her and and all of that good stuff. And so, and you trained at Tulane, is that correct?
1: Yeah. So medical school was Tulane in New Orleans. And then I did residency at University of California, San Diego Mm -hmm. from Los Angeles. So it was nice to come back to California.
0: Right, right. So when did you first realize that you wanted to specialize in urology? Was it, did you kind of know going into medical school or was it kind of when you got to your third or fourth year?
1: I knew I wanted to do surgery. And so when you rotate through the specialties, urology made the most sense. The People were very intelligent of the surgeons. they are also very friendly and cordial and and well-behaved, if you can say that. Mm Mm-hmm. So it, it just it just was more of a gentlemanly group of people. It's funny though when people see me, they look at me, they think I'm an orthopedic surgeon because I'm a bigger person.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: So I, I, I get that all the time. But uh, no, I like it, and it, it's it's a mix of love complex surgeries. It's a subspecialty, and yet there's still a love medical management and and also the genito urinary tract. It's a big black box. Everyone's kind of afraid of it. So anyone with hematuria or difficult urinating or, say, sexual dysfunction, people run and hide from it. Mm. So it's less crossover with the other specialties.
0: And when you say people run and hide from it, are you talking about when people like patients who have problems in terms of that? Or are you talking about
1: more physicians? So, for example, head and neck, head and neck, you have ENT and you have head and neck surgery, general surgery. That is a lot of overlap within the two. Right. Right. Um, so, thyroid can go either way. You have, you know, cardiology and interventional radiology, for example. Mm-hmm. You know, they both try to catheterize people's blood vessels. So, right. there's, there's some overlap between the specialties. But in urology, I mean, I guess gynecology tries to uh, manage urinary tract infections or incontinence. But really, if it gets complicated, they send it to urology. So, there's there, people don't really want to dabble. And the only people who really come on um, my field is actually radiation oncology. You guys are actually treating the, the, the area and you understand it more than some other specialists. Otherwise, people don't want to, the other physicians don't want to really be too involved in our, in our body systems.
0: Yeah, I guess you're right. As radiation oncologists, we deal a lot with that particular part of the body. So. And how long have you been practicing urology?
1: I graduated 2011, so we're in 2022. So 11 years post residency. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I began medical school in 2005. No, (laughs) 2001. 2001 I began. I graduated 2005. I began 2001. So what is that? 20 years? 21 years? Yeah. Some some way or another. Uh huh. It's always humbling, and the more things you know, the more you realize you don't know.
0: Yeah, medicine is kind of that way. Is <laughs> definitely that way. Yeah. So it's always whenever
1: whenever you get too far, you think you know everything, then you're in trouble because then you, you start to stop paying attention to the other signs and signals. And you stop reading. So that's just it's a, it's a healthy respect.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I agree. And so you practice at West Coast Urology. Mm-hmm. You and the other doctors there, right? Mm-hmm. And do you subspecialize? Is there anything that you do? Or is it general urology? Or do you do, you know? I
1: do everything. But within our group, they send me more of the robotic surgeries, prostatectomies, for example. A lot of them, most of them come to me. Complex stones. Me, Dr. Einti or I will deal with those. But more the complex issues that come through. A lot of sexual dysfunction will come to me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Refractory urinary dysfunction will come to me. I get a lot of uh, second opinions. Mm-hmm. So that comes to me. But I guess in our group, more of the robotic surgery has come to me.
0: Well, that's a, a good segue into what we were going to talk about today because I wanted to touch on prostatectomies for prostate cancer. And I've done a previous episode talking about PSA, and but we haven't actually gotten into talking about the treatment for prostate cancer. So I'm curious, when you went through training, were you trained – to also do it the open way as well as robotic? Like when did you, was that part of your training?
1: Yeah, it was initially. But when I came in, robots were just starting to take off. So everyone wanted to transition to robotics, including the university attending. So they were still in their learning curve themselves. Actually, I did more open prostatectomy when I started working with West Coast Urology with Ernie Agatstein. He was Mm -hmm. very, very good. Actually, helped me to understand both the open and the robotics. And eventually, we transitioned I think, everything to robotics. So, it's more I mean, although you get taught in, in residency, it's actually more I learn a lot more on my own. I look at, I go to a lot of conferences, I watch a lot of videos, I love critiques. And that's usually what it comes out to. Yeah. I mean, I enjoy it.
0: Yeah. What was the switch to robotic? I mean, obviously, it's probably, I would assume, you know, easier, less bleeding, maybe safer. Was that why there was that transition from open to robotic?
1: Right. So if you look at measured outcomes in peer-reviewed journals, robotic prostatectomy has much less blood loss than open prostatectomy. Traditionally, open prostatectomy you can lose a liter of blood, which is significant because a body holds five to six liters of blood. So a lot of blood loss, and that really causes delay in recovery and you know, return home, and is associated complications with transfusions. There's also a bigger incision, so that takes. And you, when you do an open surgery, not only is the incision larger, but you actually put retractors in and you pull on things, and you're know, pulling on the abdominal wall and moving organs around. Does delay recovery. It hurts. So when you do robotics, the incisions are much smaller. And you insufflate the abdomen with gas, and you don't manipulate the organs as much. You don't pull on them as hard as you do with open surgery, because the the, the air in the abdomen, the pneumoperitoneum, naturally pushes everything out of your way, mm-hmm. and then you can make much more fine dissection. And also, when you when you remove the prostate, you can you can see a lot better. A lot of open prostatectomy, you are going by feel. You can't see where you're going. Some places you just can't reach, or you're also hunched over the bed. So this way you can see, you can move the camera around, get better angles. So there's a tough area. It's easier to renegotiate the area and find new planes and continue the dissection. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Also, when when you kind of do fine suturings and you have to reconstruct the body, it's actually, I feel, easier to do it robotically. You have, you can put your hand into small places. I have large hands, so I can't always put my hand into a small area. I, I can't put the suture in. But the robotics, the hands are much smaller. I, I can put them in a much deeper space than I normally would. Mm, uh, and okay. then the, pa- the, the surgery is a little bit longer, but for whatever reason, the patients do much better. Patients can actually go home the same day. which is Oh, really? Yeah, we, we tend to keep them. Just for uh, safety issues mm-hmm. and you know I, I feel just kinder for that and then they go home the next day and and they're usually fine and the, the the pain is much less like a home run would be like kidney surgery so a partial nephrectomy, taking like a chunk of the kidney out let's say centimeter mass the patients are, are doing much much better than doing a large fly incision splitting the ribs opening the, you know, that cavity and pushing the organs aside and it really hurts right and it's just amazing how better the patients do
0: yeah and so I have a I don't know it's I wouldn't say it's a silly question but why is it called da Vinci is that just the company they came up with the name of da Vinci or anything special with da Vinci I'm not sure that the
1: company's name is intuitive mm-hmm. the robot's name is da Vinci and okay. The Da Vinci, I think, is because named after the Renaissance painter Leonardo da Vinci. was just mm-hmm. he was very adept in art, in literature, in sculpting. He actually he did a lot of robots himself. So you look at some of his drawings. He made the first like tank, first mm-hmm. air machine, right? Although it, mm-hmm. it didn't really work. I mean, some of the designs like he made, like, I think, hang gliders, and some of the designs they do use today based on him. So just the engineering ability of his. I think is what they're trying to go for. And it's mm. very important.
0: And so, for those who haven't maybe seen any videos or don't have access to any videos, can you just tell us a little bit? Kind of give us a description of where are you sitting versus you know the Da Vinci robotic arms and things like that. Can you kind of describe it to us a little bit?
1: Sure. So there's two parts to the Da Vinci. One is the console we sit on. It may look like a uh, video game console. There's a chair, and there are hand sticks, and there's foot pedals. That's attached to the, uh, the actual robot, which looks like a spider. has you know, four legs that yeah four legs that come down, and you move the robot on a crane, and it, you the arms come down onto the patient, and you place the the arms that we call the trocars into the, in the positions that you want, and you dock the robot, and then you control it from the console. So I'm sitting maybe about six feet away from the patient Mm -hmm. and there is a bedside assistant and obviously the nurses and anesthesiologists are right next to the patient and they help control some of the arms or if the arms need to be changed into a different instrument, Mm -hmm. help make that change. It's a lot more ergonomical and the OR stuff actually prefers doing it this way than open surgery.
0: Mm. And is it faster? Is it also a little bit faster, would you say?
1: No, it's slower, actually. Slower. Because there's it's much more fine movement. With open surgery, you can just put your hand in and bluntly move a lot of organs at once. My hand is much bigger than the robotic arms, so I can move things faster. The robot is very, very fine dissection, so although it's much more, it, it can be more precise, sometimes that, that over-precision makes things a little bit slower but Mm -hmm. it's only about an hour slower. It's not that much, it's that much more slow. And more importantly, the patient does much better. Their recovery is faster. They go home sooner, they go back to work sooner. So the trade-off is much better for the patient. And -hmm. also for the surgeon, the team, it's easier on us, Mm -hmm. called surgeon fatigue. If you're on a case many, many hours, you start to get tired. Maybe your your arms aren't as smooth as they were at the beginning of the surgery, so you're not as precise. With a robot, because you're sitting, you have arm rest, you have head rest, it's less tiring on the surgeon, so you can focus longer periods of time on the patient. Overall, I think it's improvement.
0: Yeah, and what is the length of a typical prostatectomy in terms of time? Does it take two hours, three hours?
1: depends how much work we're doing. So let's say... You know, OR time, let's say it's 7:30. By the time the patient comes in the room and we get everything set up, it's probably 8:30. And I'm usually done around you know 10, 10:30. So you can say hour and a half, two hours is a typical time. And then another hour or so to you know, get the patient off the bed and take him to the recovery room. So say for the the whole for the patient's experience, it's probably about the whole morning. So about four hours. In incision time, we say, and actual Active operating time, probably say about two hours.
0: And a lot of times when I'm talking to patients and they've been diagnosed with prostate cancer, you know, and maybe, like I said, they've seen you already and then they come to me to hear about some of the, you know, side effects from radiation and and things like that. One of the questions that I get quite a bit because you have already talked to them about the risk of incontinence and erectile dysfunction. And so, you know, they ask me those same questions. So, when it comes to recovering from a prostatectomy, what are some of the things that patients are going to potentially experience? during that part of recovery, like, again, like incontinence and, or erectile dysfunction? And then how do you talk to them about that? Like, what do you quote to them in terms of the risk of, of experiencing those, those side effects?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very good question. So, you know, first we talk about, you know, recovery to normal activities and, and pain, but in terms of return of body function, usually we say incontinence, We say about, I say about 80% of men achieve continence, to defined as less than one pad a day. Uh, even the best of guys will leak a little bit if he picks ha- up something very heavy, or let's say he has a flu and he's a coughing fit for a week or so. He may still have a little bit of incontinence. That's all comers, and that includes even the best guys in the world. There will be some incontinence that you have following a prostatectomy. The older you are, the less muscle mass you have, or muscular strength you have, the higher rates of incontinence. So, you know, the patients that are younger, better than patients that are older. In terms of erectile dysfunction, that depends what their pre-operative erectile function was. If they're having moderate sem- erectile dysfunction before the surgery or they're completely impotent prior to surgery, the surgery will not make it better, right? So they'll be a little mm-hmm. bit worse. The better your pre-op function is, the better off your post-op. That erectile function is kind of all over the map. I would say about if you're a young man that's a man in his 40s and 50s or even early 60s and you're healthy, you have strong erections, you don't need medications, I would say about my hands, maybe about 50% of those guys don't need any medication at all. Those are the best patients. And then maybe another 50% may need some medication like Viagra Cialis. Again, the older men... They weren't having good function beforehand, they're not going to have good function afterwards. And those men, we may need to, medications probably will not work on them. So they may they need more advanced treatment, like injections of medication directly into the penis, the different types of medications that we use. And that, and that generally works for most of the men. But 80% of the men don't work for them. The other side effect of any type of prostate surgery or even radiation is lack of, seminal emission, meaning that they, can't eject, they can orgasm, but they have a dry ejaculation. Mm-hmm. The prostate makes the majority of fluids in the ejaculate. It's not the testicle. Testicles make about 0.2 milliliters of fluid. The Most of the fluids come from the prostate and the seminal vesicles. So they're removed. You're not going to make anything. And also with radiation, I think you probably would agree that once the tissue is destroyed from radiation because of the cancer, they're not really going to ejaculate much fluid at all.
0: Correct. Yes.
1: So that's the other function. Those are the more common things. Now, people have may have some pain afterwards. They need more rehabilitation. You can have hernias. But those are the, the more common side effects are incontinence and impotence.
0: And people sometimes ask me about, what well, are there things that, that you can do to help preserve their erections? So like a nerve-sparing prostatectomy... Yeah. Can you talk to us a little bit about that and, and how you decide if that's appropriate for a patient or not?
1: Yes. So excellent question. So the nerves of the penis run posterior lateral to process, so behind the prostate, close by the rectal wall. Again, we have to look at the patient. So someone with lower risk prostate cancer, less aggressive prostate cancer, less volume of prostate cancer, when we do the dissection, the prostate and the bladder are attached. There's no real... You don't really come off well. You have to make your own planes. But as you get behind the prostate, the nerves are there. So we do nerve-sparing prostatectomy where we uh, try to free the nerves and take the prostate out. The problem is there's, there's not one nerve of the penis that causes erectile functions. There are hundreds of little nerve twigs that run through the area. So it's not as easy as you would think to preserve the nerves. The other problem is the more... If the more nerves you preserve, you may leave cancer behind. The the prostate is immediately attached to the pudendal nerves. So it's a a delicate balance. You don't want to preserve the nerve and leave the cancer behind. So for lower-risk patients, you can do that because it's less likely that we'll leave cancer behind. Patients are much higher risk, high-volume disease, high-aggressive disease. You have to take a wider plane. And so you will need to take some of those nerves to prevent the cancer from coming back. And also, if someone who is going to have high risk you think is going to have radiation in the future, you definitely want to take as much of it as, as possible so the radiation works better. And then the other, part, the other issue with those nerves, they also the, in that general area are also nerves of continence, so the sphincter muscles. So the better nerve sparing you do, The better continents you have. Right. You actually go hand in hand.
0: All right. And so when you have someone who has just had a biopsy done of their prostate and now they, and it's been confirmed that they have prostate cancer. And, of course, you will send them to someone like me or maybe another radiation oncologist that you work with to hear about radiation so that they can, you know, have all of the information available to them. But how do you make the decision in terms of who should have surgery versus maybe someone who shouldn't. Now, you know, I know I talk to patients about Gleason scores, PSAs, what's, you know, what was found at the time of of MRI. We also talk about the patient's age. But what are some of the factors that go into your decision-making in terms of, you know, who's appropriate for surgery versus who's appropriate for radiation? Because I I know what I tell them, but I would love to hear what, what your thoughts are.
1: Right, right. So if, so this is a so patient has had a biopsy for whatever reason, and they have a result of prostate cancer. And that's where we're going to start from. Mm-hmm. Look at like how aggressive is a prostate cancer. So there's, there's a Gleason sum score. We say you know, Gleason 3 plus 3, 3 plus 4, 4 plus 3. Or the Gleason grade group goes 1 through 5. So depending on how, how you want to categorize them. But let's just say the Gleason sum. So we look at, for example, low risk, or we say very low risk. These are patients with Gleason 3 plus 3, less than 3 cores, less than 50%, PSA less than 10, no nodules, or usually T1C, which is just a prostate cancer found on PSA only. These patients who have this lower-grade disease, lower-volume disease, you can watch them. And that goes along all comers. Even the young men, I'll watch them because it may be years for they need treatment so we start with that also someone who's more elderly and frail let's say a wheelchair person not very healthy copd has a stroke those patients also once they get diagnosed we may not want to intervene because they have other morbidities i mean they have a, maybe it seems like they may have a heart attack any day now you want to leave those guys alone as well so those are the, the two extremes so we call that active surveillance now, the next group are the people that you decide to do uh, active treatments, and that's what I guess you're asking me for, right? Yes. So active treatments, usually we talk about, usually we look at what's called nomogram tables, what's the likelihood of benefit of treatment versus, in this case, surgery versus radiation. Usually looking at actuary tables, men that are less than 65 tend to do better with surgery because of the possible recurrence is usually around 10, 15 years. So most men don't live to be on age 78, we say. So right. that's the average U.S. male. Someone's 65, you do surgery, they're 10 to 15 years, goes to 75, 80. They tend to do better, and also they can have radiation later on if needed. Mm-hmm. Men over the age of 65, let's say, 60, let's say people, men over the age of 70, because most men don't live to be 78 or 80, those patients, to put them through a, a, a risky surgery, would probably be better off having radiation done. The Radiation control for 10 years is also quite good. You cannot have surgery after, so you can't do what we call multimodal treatment. So those patients probably would do better for radiation rather than surgery, unless they have longevity. If these men say, all the men in my family live to be 100 years old, well, 10 years plus 70 is 80. Maybe they should have surgery with, with possible radiation to follow. The men between ages 65 and 70, you have to look at the total risk factors, their morbidities. What are they diabetic? Have they had multiple heart attacks? You may want to have customized for those people. You can do additional testing. We look at MRI to see what volume disease does it look like it's extending outside the prostate. We call PSA density, which is the PSA divided by the volume, cutoff is 0.015. People who have a worse PSA density they should have more active treatment than someone with a better PSA density, so less than 0.15. You know, also there's all a lot of molecular markers or genetic mm-hmm. testing like cipher, Polaris, Oncotype, before they give you right. some risk categories. Right. Uh, and then you can, that, so that's the trigger to maybe help you or help the patient decide whether to treat or not. But by and large, generally what we say is men less than 65 should probably be, steer toward radiation, men over the age of 65 to 70 should more likely have radiation as a primary treatment.
0: Right. And if we were to kind of drill down into, let's talk about the men who have what we consider high-risk prostate cancer based on PSA, Gleason score, you know, there's kind of, in the, in the past, and I'm not so sure how much these days, but, you know, especially when I went through training, there was a lot of debate between radiation oncologists and, and urologists. These Gleason 9 patients, you know, you're going to take them to surgery. They're more than likely going to need, you know, radiation afterwards. Why are you going to do that? What? Let's just irradiate them. But the thinking is different in terms of urologists, correct, with these high-risk patients, that there is a benefit to taking them to surgery. Can you just touch upon that a little bit?
1: Yeah, and that's, well, it depends how high-risk they are. So younger men, let's say the prostate cancer is still within the prostate or let's say just outside the capsule. So those mm-hmm. high-risk people, high volume, that are extending out. If it's already metastatic, if it's outside the prostate, they have positive lymph nodes, there's no benefit to surgery for those patients. Right. So those patients should undergo hormonal ablation with stereotactic radiation, including the pelvic notes. So, so the word, those guys who are high-risk, are metastatic, they should not have surgery. They should have radiation. So let's start with that group of people. Right. Yep. If you're talking about the other high group of people who are not metastatic, who, let's say, have a high-volume disease, you do an MRI, there may or may not be extra capsular extension. Mm-hmm. but you do the rectal exam, the prostate's mobile, they would benefit from multimodal therapy. So that includes surgery, debulk it, stage the cancer, remove any lymph nodes that may be micrometastatic, and then you follow their PSAs afterwards. If their PSA does not go to zero immediately after surgery, usually we ask for radiation six months postoperatively mm-hmm. for adjuvant radiation. And that, when that works very well with hormonal ablation, and, and the literature kind of goes back and forth how long of hormonal ablation you would do. But those patients would do better. Alternatively, patient who's very high risk, again, the younger patient we're talking about, you can do their surgery, and let's say their PSA stays zero, you can hold off on radiation until they have biochemical recurrence. That means their PSA, in this case, greater than 0.2. right? And then you can have salvage radiation. As long as the patient's watched, there's no... Benefit of having salvage versus adjuvant radiation for PSA of zero. Right. Now, the European literature says that adjuvant radiation, that is, you know, within six months is better than salvage. That's true. But those patients also are not really being closely looked at. You look at all comers and they show up f- several years later with more advanced disease. People are actively being watched afterwards, the adjuvant versus salvage radiation, I think, are equivalent, if the PSA is between, say, 0. 0.2 and 0. 0.5, you start doing mm-hmm. it early. Mm-hmm. I, I think they would do be better because you're taking most of the disease out. With very really bad prostate cancer, your know, radiation itself can have failure. And right. then you, you may not have as many treatment options for radiation failure. Right. Uh, you can do salvage radiation, you can do cryoablation. I mean, some Europeans do high radiation failure. Uh, and there's also a certain category of men that you do surgery. And you do the radiation, and you do the salvage, and you do the hormone that will ultimately die of the disease. Yeah. And there are those people, and that's a very unfortunate group of people. And those aren't too common. So my feeling is the more options a man has without burning any bridges, the better off they are.
0: Right. And are you using tests such as decipher and oncotype, but specifically decipher in your decision making?
1: Not usually. I do more MRI and PSA mm-hmm. density. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot cheaper for the patients. And although those molecular, those tissue genetics do have a spot, I think for the anxious man who wants to make a decision right away, it may guide you. But I feel that even prostate cancer in general is still a very slow cancer. Even the more, I mean, that, those tests, the molecular test is more for the intermediate patient. So the high risk, you don't do it for, you treat those, right. kids, by the way. The right. low risk, I mean, there's a role for being a low risk patient, but you have months to years before those patients will become unresectable. So, you know, waiting six months a year to see what the natural history of the cancer is, it doesn't really affect the patient too much. They'll be fine. So right. I, I don't, I don't jump to it. Also, sometimes these are very expensive and these patients have limited budgets and I don't want to break their bank. right? So I, again, I, I tend to do PSA density and MRI seem to have better predictive values than those molecular tests do.
0: And what are your thoughts on the PSMA PET scan or Actionman PET scan? Are you utilizing those tests at this point?
1: So those tests are more designed for the post-treatment patient.
0: Mm-hmm. So someone
1: who's had prior prostatectomy or radiation treatment. And they have a biochemical recurrence. or PSA has come back up. That's the current indication for it. Unfortunately, most insurances don't pay for that. The out-of-pocket yeah. cost, cost of patient, could be anywhere between two thousand to I don't know, five thousand dollars. And that's a for some patients, that's just a lot of money that they, they can't afford. So I haven't been that successful for it. Also, mm-hmm. there's only a few centers that do it. That how that radioisotope is not easy to get. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think it's difficult for a lot of the radiology facilities to get that tracer. So although I do think about it, I think it has very good utility. Right now, this economics are a little tough for patients. Hopefully, in the future, insurance will improve the coverage.
0: You're right. It is difficult sometimes for them to obtain the radioisotope. and But patients are definitely, they're learning about it, and they're coming in, and they're asking about it. and. I've actually, yeah, you're right. It's been mostly used in the like the post-operative setting, but it now seems like there are some urologists that are even actually starting to order it for the, you know, intact prostate. I wanted to get your thoughts on, since I know this is also becoming, I wouldn't, I don't know if I would say more popular, but it's definitely out there. What are your feelings on Haifu, and have you? Do you have any thoughts also on Tulsa? Because that's a that's a newer, I guess, treatment, which sounds like to me is maybe a little bit of the reverse mechanism in terms of how it's done from haifu. But what are your thoughts on on cryo, haifu, tulsa versus surgery or radiation?
1: Right. So we're talking about focal therapy versus whole gland, uh, whole gland therapy, let's just start with Mm -hmm. that, although you can't do Mm -hmm. whole gland with any of those. The idea is focal therapy, so a man who has a small amount of Gleason 3 plus 3, or 3 plus 4, and let's say it's a perfect world, you you, biopsy the image and everything's 100% accurate, one small area that has this low to intermediate risk cancer, that's what we're talking about, Right.
0: Right.
1: For that patient, I don't know, I, I feel that may have a role for, for those patients. The 3 plus 3, the low-risk patients, those are better off with active surveillance. Do nothing for them. Mm-hmm. As someone who is very anxious that wants treatment, I think I think they can choose that. That's more for the 3 plus 4, low-volume, one part of the prostate. The trick for these, though, are there has been a way where you can treat the prostate, but... If there is recurrence, doesn't sabotage them for later treatment? I mean, so let's say you do high food in a small area, and let's say cancer comes back. Well, cancer could always come back, right? Does that make it now that he can no longer have surgery because the tissue planes are just completely destroyed? So that that becomes the issue. I mean, you can, they can still have salvage radiation following you know, these treatments. Mm-hmm. So right. radiation becomes more of a salvage in, in that scenario. Exactly. But I, think, I think it's reasonable for the patient, but you have, so they also have to understand the risks and you know what the natural history of prostate cancer is and how it's usually multifocal, usually more than one area. But if you have informed consent and that's really what they want to do, I, I think it's reasonable to try. it. I wouldn't do it on the, the, the 40, 50-year-old. I think definitely the 60, 70-year-olds, I think it's good. Even other like focal therapies, I think there's now with CyberKnife, focal brachytherapy, That target Mm only one area. There are different ways of of targeting that area. Mm -hmm. Which one works better, I'm I'm not sure if if there's been studies to compare all types of focal
0: therapy. No, there hasn't been. I don't think there has been at all. But, well, that's good to hear from, you know, hear your thoughts about it because I, you know, I come across patients who are considering doing HIFU and, and now, like I said, now Tulsa and that's definitely coming into play more often so it becomes uh, for some of these patients radiation or prostatectomy or or HIFU. It's like which one do i do and uh, it's it can be i think for sure a little overwhelming for the patients i i find in my practice when i'm sitting in front of a in front of a gentleman and maybe you know his partner or a significant other and they have been told You could have surgery or you could have, you know, radiation and and maybe they've heard about HIFU or seen, you know, a urologist that does HIFU. They're, in a sense, overwhelmed and confused because I think when you have a lot of choices in front of you, it's like, well, which one do I do and how do I make this decision? Because, you know, they're hearing about the side effects from the radiation, they're hearing about, you know, the post-operative things that they may experience after surgery and that They just have a really hard time making a decision and it seems as though it would be much easier for them to hear us say to them, you definitely need to do this. You know, don't even think about the other treatments. This is the one that you absolutely need to do. But a lot of times we can't say that. When you have a patient in front of you like that and you're having this conversation, what have you seen in your practice in terms of, you know, the patients and their and their thoughts and, and how they go about making this decision and, and how do you help them make the decision?
1: I start with standard of care. So mm-hmm. what are what have been treatment studies in the past, randomized, peer-reviewed, outcomes noted, and we look at the data for this particular type of patient for what is what has generally been shown to the best effect. So we talk about actuary tables, longevity, morbidity. We talk about all the Gleason grades and PSAs, PSA density, MRI. So we look at all those factors to help guide the patient. I start again with standard of care. Now, are there outliers? Yes. If they they want to talk about non-standard of care, like this focal therapy, that's a very narrow group of men that would qualify for that. That's not for all comers. Right. So if, if someone who has high Gleason-10 disease, they should not be given focal therapy. They should not go into high food. So you, you don't want to give them suboptimal treatment. You don't want to give them inefficient treatment. Because it's just a waste. So there's the other opposite extreme. Now, if it is that, that man that has that unusual, they do qualify, say, for focal therapy, We'll discuss it, but those are also not standard of care. They're very expensive, usually around $25,000, give or take, for the treatment. Out of pocket, not covered by your insurance. They have to understand they have their own personal costs. They have to do it. Now, if they want to do it and they can pay for it, okay, fine. But uh, that's also difficult for a lot of people to pay that much money for something that's not standard of care and they still may need treatment in the future.
0: Good point. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points. So that's a good way to to approach it. And you're right; it's it's. I've seen quite a few patients who have had had to come out of pocket for you know something like Haifu, and that can be difficult for a lot of patients. And I know that this new one Tulsa is also cash as well, and so that can that can definitely be difficult. Any other thoughts in terms of prostatectomies and that you want to talk about? I know we've talked, we've gone into a lot of detail about them, but anything else that you want to mention about?
1: For prostatectomy, it's also very important to know your surgeon and what their familiarity is, what their training is, are they high volume or not. Hmm. So someone who doesn't do them very often, I'm sure they may have a specialties in something else. So you want to make sure that your surgeon is themselves familiar and something they do routinely. And our group, Intuitive, we mentioned the the company that makes Da Vinci, keeps track of the higher volume surgeons on their website. We're very fortunate we've been included on that. So we are a very higher volume center than other people in LA and Orange County. So I would encourage patients to look for high volume people. If they're not sure, you can always go to university. There's one thing I want to kind of tell people that when you go to university. You, may not, you also may not know which surgeon it is. Right. Uh, because even within the university, there may be someone who's an expert in kidney cancer, but for somehow, you ended up in his for prostate cancer. So, mm, yeah. you have to be careful of that. And also, the other issue these are still training facilities. And so, within training facilities, I mean, they're doing, they're, they they may be less efficient. Their surgeries, things may take longer. They have people who are learning still in the operating room, the anesthesiologist, you know, the surgeons. And so it, it, the, it may be a little more varied on your outcomes. So uh, if you do go to university, I would encourage people to make sure that they get the right doctor and make sure they understand who's in the operating room with them and, and who's doing what.
0: That's, yeah, that bring, that's a very good point. And I'm not sure a lot of people know that because I think they just kind of figure that, oh, well, everybody, you know, if you're a urologist or you probably have done this type of procedure, you know, everybody's done it the same or the same number of procedures. So that's a really good point. So thank you for that because that's also true for radiation therapy when it comes to brachytherapy. So if you're interested in in having brachytherapy, you need to go to someone who does it all day, every day. And because the more that one is definitely it's different it's different than external beam and when you're when you're doing brachytherapy you need to to have had a lot of experience doing it so i think that's really good advice well dr nofar this has been Fabulous. I am so happy that you decided to, to come and talk to us today about your practice and you and and uh, prostate cancer. And so I always like to ask also, how can people find you?
1: Yes, yeah, so you can look us up. We are West Coast Urology. We've recently merged with Genesis Urology in based in San Diego uh, and Skyline Urology based in Los Angeles. So we Cover now counties of San Diego, Orange County, LA County. So slash West Coast Urology Division, you can Google my name NoFar N like November O W F like Frank A R, and you'll point us. You'll, you'll get our website and happy to take a look at you guys. Give you an honest opinion, and if you treat with us, that's fine. If you just want to an opinion and continue on where you want where you want to go, that's fine as well. We're happy to help you as well as 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 any way as we can
0: that's fabulous and that's great well thank you so much
1: can i say one more thing before we go
0: Well, really
1: fun in this podcast is you also get a very good radiation oncologist so dr Morel, i've known you for many <laughs> years my patients love you so yes if you have thank patients, you i want to sit down and, and talk to someone who understands the business who gets a very good outcome i would really encourage you to see dr Morel. she'll give you an excellent objective, unbiased opinion. So, uh, and I think this is fabulous what you're doing. So and I'm very happy my patients really love you. They're all very happy. Sometimes they drive, I send patients from South Orange County all the way to Beverly Hills to see you. And they're all very happy to come all the way up there. So keep up the great work.
0: Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Thank you. That makes me feel really good. So thank you so much. And I'm always happy to see your patients. I'm, I I love what I do, and so I'm always happy to to help in any way that I can. So that's good to hear that your patients are happy. Okay, well, again, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. I think you're a fabulous urologist as well, and I enjoy working with you. So I look forward to seeing you in the future. Hopefully when COVID dies down, we can, you know, do this again in person. <laughs> You can't use your, your beam to radiate COVID away? I wish. I wish. I mean, I, I, at this point, I'm I'm figuring we just should try anything that we can because <laughs> I'm kind of tired of it. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm done with it now. <laughs> so, okay. So I really hope you enjoyed today's episode with Dr. Nofar. And I hope that you were able to get something out of it and learn a little bit of information regarding surgery for prostate cancer. And like we mentioned in the episode, there can be a lot of information out there and a lot of treatment options available to men who have been diagnosed with prostate cancer. And it can also be a little overwhelming to make a decision about which treatment to go through with. So I think it's really important that every person who's diagnosed with prostate cancer sees the appropriate physician, and that includes a radiation oncologist and sometimes even a medical oncologist, to hear about all of the options available, and that way you can make an informed decision. So again, thank you so much for downloading this episode. And if you would like more information about Dr. Nofar or West Coast Urology, check out the show notes and I'll put a link in the show notes to his website. All right. Well, until next time, be well. Thank you for listening to the Cancer from A to Z podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would love it if you subscribed and left a review. And if you know anyone who could benefit from this information, please share the podcast with them. Until next time, I am your host, Dr. Rosalind Morell.